The sports world has been greening itself for most of the century, but despite these efforts, most fans have no idea. That changes now. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. Hosted by Lou Blaustein, Green Sports Pod highlights the successes, challenges, and opportunities to green the games we love to watch and play, and give you the chance to hear from the athletes who are taking positive environmental actions. Learn more and subscribe to the show today at greensportsblog.com. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. I'm your host, Lou Blaustein, and what an absolute treat it is for us to have Jackie Pieri as our guest today. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. She is an eco-athletes champion, yes. A pro hockey player, yes. An environmental engineer, yes. And a climate action advocate, yes. All in one human being. And so usually to get all of that, I'd have to interview two or three people. But here, I'm interviewing just one. So Jackie, Great to have you with us. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me, Lou. I know we've been talking about this for a while. It's nice to finally connect. Amen to that. Okay, lots to cover. So let's get right to it. First, you are a pro hockey player who's playing in Italy now from the U.S., from Jersey, right around the corner from where I'm sitting, by the way. So tell us a bit about your, what I think is a unique hockey story yeah so i guess we can start in jersey where you are (laughs) so i grew up in montclair new jersey and my dad was actually a football and baseball guy and my brother went on a school field trip to the ice rink and we both just like totally fell in love with hockey my dad started playing at the same time obviously this was 25 years ago. So there were very few opportunities for girls to play separately when I was growing up. So I played with the boys all the way up until I went to Brown University, where I got the opportunity to play NCAA Division One. Played four years with the Bears there. And I did my mechanical engineering undergraduate degree there. And after I graduated, I thought I would be done with hockey. There weren't really a lot of pro opportunities at the time. And around the same time, my dad passed away. So I had a bit of a, not a crisis moment, but a moment of reflection about what I wanted to do with my life. And I decided to go up to Calgary in Canada and play in a sort of pre-pro league up there. And I played for five seasons with the Calgary Inferno in the Canadian Women's Hockey League. And from my first year to my fifth year, it really became a professional league. We were making salaries, although they were pretty small. um, It was still a huge, huge improvement. And incredible progress to be a part of while I was up there. You did some winning. We did do some winning. We won the Clarkson Cup in 2016 and we came close a couple other times. So we really went from also being the underdog of the league to barely making playoffs to really being a contender, which was really fun. And I also got to see the community support grow. So while I was there, a few teammates and I helped establish a junior Inferno youth girls rebranding And we set up like a mentorship coaching system. So in the spring, I was coaching little girls out in Calgary and, you know, the community started to know that we existed and, you know, that helped it become a bit more professional. But also while I was out there, because it was only semi-professional, I was working full-time. So I was working as an engineer. I started at a natural gas company, a methane. I don't know. I don't even like to call it natural gas anymore because I feel like it's greenwashing, but a methane gas kind of home heating pipeline company. 
I ended up in my last years there working on the innovation team. So trying to find ways to make the gas grid more sustainable. I got frustrated with that process, felt like things were moving way too slowly. And so I quit everything and moved to Europe. (laughs) And continued both on the engineering side and on the hockey side. So share how that worked out. Yeah, this was another moment where I thought I was done with hockey. I didn't think that there were a lot of opportunities. And while I was doing my master's, a team up in Sweden contacted me. They said, you know, we're looking for a defenseman. We heard you're in Europe. You know, we know a little bit about your background. Would you come up? And I actually couldn't come up for those playoffs, but it got me thinking. And so when I did my second year of my master's program, I was in Stockholm and I signed with uh, SDE and played there for two seasons. So While I was doing my master's, I played another two years of pro in the SDHL, which was also a really fun experience. Very different than the Canadian League, but really... How so? Well, you know, the level of play is a little bit different. The Canadian League had a lot of the top national team players from the US and Canada. Who are among the best in the world. Exactly. And the Swedish League had a really nice infrastructure for the way that they partnered with the men's league. So a lot of the opportunities were a lot more professional which was really fun. We were playing in big stadiums with proper marketing and proper TV support and you know all those things that really make it feel professional. Yeah, it was a good experience in Sweden. I, I definitely think that that league does a lot of things really well that North America could learn from. And it's been cool to see everything growing all around the world, <laughs> both leagues. And you know, Sweden also, not for nothing, is a hockey hotbed as well. And so... What an interesting kind of hockey experience that you've had all over the Northern Hemisphere, at least. And then, if I have the story right, you go stay in Europe, but go south to Italy. Talk a bit about that, if you would. Yeah, that's right. So my dad was born in Italy, and I've always kind of been interested in moving here. I think immediately after college, that time when I moved to Canada, Italy was one of the options that I was considering moving to. My aunt and my, I have like very close family out here. My aunt, my uncle, my two cousins. And my dad used to like ship us out here in the summers. So I spent a lot of time here growing up and it always felt like home. And when Italy won the bid for the 2026 Olympics, I knew that it was the right time for me to move here. I knew that things were aligning, that I should try to get my citizenship and at the very least be a part of the Italian national team's Olympic story in some way. Yeah, Jackie, that is kind of a fortuitous confluence of events. I know there's a connection between your interest in hockey and Italy winning the Olympic bid and your dad. Could you share that with us? Yeah, I mean, so my dad was born in Italy, like I said, and our family has always been like closely connected with our Italian heritage. Hockey was always something that made me feel close with my dad. It was something my dad, my brother, and I always did together. And so the thought of hopefully wearing an Italian jersey, an Italian national team jersey with my dad's name on the name bar is something that would be really meaningful for me. And I I really hope that it's something that we get to accomplish. And that makes two of us, the two of us who are talking here on this interview, and I'm sure those who are listening to it. So that's still a couple of years down the road. So In the meantime, you've come from Sweden down to Bolzano in Italy. And for those who are not familiar with Italian geography, it's in the north of the country, not far from Switzerland. And so 
not, to my knowledge, a big hockey center, but there's a pro team there and Jackie found herself there. What's that been like since you found yourself in Bolzano? Yeah, Bolzano is a really cool area. So we're actually, maybe a lot of people will know, like Milan and Venice, we're halfway between those two places and then north a bit towards the Austrian border. And there's a really interesting history here with during World War II and borders moving. So people here actually speak a German-Italian dialect. And the culture is really interesting because you hear people speaking German and German, you know, stereotypes are very reserved people. You hear people speaking German, but with their hands, like an Italian stereotype. (laughs) And here, there's actually quite a long history with hockey. So there's an Italian league on the women's side, and most of the teams are based here. There's one more team out west near the French border. But on the women's side and on the men's side, there's quite a bit of competitiveness in hockey. The men's team almost won the European Championship last year, the Ebel Championship. And the team that I'm playing for has been champions of the European Women's Hockey League in the past. I think we've won it twice. So yeah, there's unexpectedly some hockey up here. (laughs) And from what I understand, not only there's the Italian League, you're also playing in a league that stretches through kind of Central and into Eastern Europe. And so maybe you could share a little bit about what that's been like with our listeners. Yeah, that's been really cool because it's It's a league that's definitely less professional than the other leagues that I've played in, but there's this cross-cultural component that wasn't a part of the other league. So we play in in Hungary, in Poland, in Austria, a couple other places. And so it's a lot of long bus rides (laughs) and, you know, on ice cursing at each other in languages that we can't understand. (laughs) (laughs) That has some pluses and some minuses, I reckon, because you're playing pro hockey in Bolzano, but like in your other stops along the way, you're doing other things. And so what have you been doing besides hockey? And how does that relate to your passion for climate action? Yeah. So actually, before I came to Italy, I did my master's thesis in ice rink refrigeration. So I studied a refrigerant. We were testing whether it was more energy efficient for the rinks and also if it was less damaging to the environment, if it was released into the atmosphere. So Refrigerants are one of these like invisible climate nightmares in our supermarkets, in like the way that we cool our servers for our computers. There are these chemicals that run through the piping that when released can be thousands of times more damaging to the environment than carbon dioxide. So you can imagine it like carbon dioxide is like a spring blanket, but we have a lot of blankets stacked. And some of these refrigerants are like a thick, heavy down blanket. So each blanket that you put, I don't know, it's not a perfect analogy, but you get no, the, I think you it's really good, actually. <laughs> but you get the idea. So getting rid of the use of these refrigerants is really critical to solving the climate crisis. And this is one of the solutions that I would love to see implemented more because my research did, in addition to research of other people studying this, found that it does increase energy efficiency and it does have significantly lower global warming potential. So through your research, is there a recommended refrigerant or body of refrigerants that you identified as, okay, this would make a major difference? Yeah, I really think that it's been well known for a while that natural refrigerants are better for the environment than some of the chemical refrigerants that we've been using. They require a little bit of a redesign of refrigerant systems. So there's a little bit of investment, which is obviously why people delay making the changes. What would be a natural refrigerant example? 
So ammonia refrigerants and carbon dioxide refrigerants are two that, well, carbon dioxide has a global warming potential of one and ammonia released into the atmosphere has a warming potential of zero. So you see which has a better profile. And right. speaking of refrigerants, Project Drawdown, for our listeners, if you have not heard of it, it is a great organization. There's also a book by the same name. And they go into like the best climate solutions and rank them in the top 50, a top 100. And refrigerants, and they adjust this over time, but refrigerants are always in the top five, sometimes number one. Project Drawdown, check it out. If you want some climate hope, read Project Drawdown. I'm glad you brought that up. That's actually, you know, what piqued my curiosity to do this research. I remember reading the Drawdown research and being like, where the heck are the refrigerants? Like, what does that have to do with anything? And they're really all around us. And I don't think it's for the everyday person to be concerned about, but I do think it is for engineers and designers who are creating these industrial facilities and ice rinks to really start thinking about immediately. So that's one thing that you've been involved in. But then also you got into the movie business. Yeah, I got sidetracked with your question. Talk a little bit about that. And remember, don't forget the little people who helped you on the way up. I would never. And when you get on the red carpet, and we won't get into who you will be wearing. Of course, we have to hope that the after and strike ends, but that's a whole nother point. Red carpet, I'll probably be wearing something thrifted. (laughs) Uh, There you go. Boom. (laughs) So actually, through Lou, I got connected with director, Emmy Award-winning director, John Alpert. And he's doing a documentary now about the connection between the climate emergency and ice hockey specifically. And I really love the concept of this. One of our supporters at Eco Athletes, Catherine Hayhoe, always talks about how the best way to talk about the climate is to connect it with things that people already care about. And hockey has really passionate participants and really passionate fans and I think it's an unexplored area. And it's, you know, one of the reasons why eco athletes, I think, can be so powerful. So the whole concept is visiting hockey players around the world and talking about how the climate emergency is impacting their day-to-day lives. So when we were in Scotland, I was up there to present the eco athletes climate manifesto for COP26. And while I was there, we had played this hockey game and John was able to bring in, you know, the head of like the World Meteorological Society, a researcher who's working on carbon emissions in the Arctic, black ash or something along those lines about shipping fuels, like leaving black soot on the ice and making it melt faster. So all these like really cool hockey players that also do really interesting climate science. And so I was part of the documentary in Scotland. John and I stayed in touch because he's from New Jersey. And he kept calling me and saying, when are we doing the last game in Italy? When can I come? So finally, this last January, we organized a game here and talked to a bunch of climate scientists from the area about how the glaciers here are essentially already destined to melt. We've already gone past a tipping point for the local glaciers here, which was, I think, you know, some of these big tipping points, these big like moments in the climate science that show a point of no return are really sad. Like when you think about how long the glaciers have existed and how important they've been for ecosystems here, it's just one of those, like really you feel the sadness of a loss and I'm, I'm new here and I still can like feel the sense of that. It's coming through here over the miracle of the internet. I'm feeling it and I've never even been there. Yeah. And besides the glaciers, like lower than the glaciers, 
this area is a huge ski and snowboard destination. And it's actually how I knew Bolzano existed was I came to snowboard with my family and, you know, the mountains are going to be all artificial snow in the coming years. It's too hot. And also the rain patterns are changing. So there's a lot of drought and, you know, the snow melt, which usually fills the reservoirs. There's a lot of complicated things that are not my expertise, but from what I understand, basically there's not going to be natural snow for the mountains here, even though there have been for generations. It's another thing that's like, you can feel the immensity of the impact that we're having in a really sad way. So yeah, that's what I've been up to. (laughs) And that's not all. First, (laughs) one thing to talk about on the film before we move on is that a key part of it and the ice hockey world has been, I would say, a bit ahead of the other sports leagues on climate. The NHL established NHL Green back more than a decade ago, for example. And one of the stated reasons is that the heritage of ice hockey, even though the way we watch it, it's played in arenas, is outdoors on frozen ponds in places like, I don't know, Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan and Minot, North Dakota and someplace in Finland, like way the heck up there. And that ability to play pond hockey the season is literally is shrinking on either end of the winter right and you know i think so it wasn't exactly my experience but for the vast majority of my teammates they grew up and fell in love with the sport playing outside playing on natural bodies of water and i think it's an equity issue as well i think we have a diversity problem in hockey that we've known about for a really long time and the more that the sport gets pushed inside, the more expensive it gets and the less access there is for people who aren't as able to pay for the ice and pay for the formal training and things like that. So I think that's one issue. And then I think it's also just very visible, you know, like this year, the canals in Ottawa, which are, I don't know, there's like tens of kilometers of canal where you can skate like a marathon, which is something that's on my bucket list. That's really, really cool. Oh, people commute to and from work on the Rideau Canal. Yeah, it's super cool. And this year it didn't freeze. And I just thought it was really ironic because a lot of the signs that were showing the closure were sponsored by an energy utility, an oil company. And so I think people really need to start seeing the connection there. And I think it's going to, you know, it's taking a long time, but we need to get moving on it. I have one funny story for you about playing outdoors from my childhood. It It wasn't on a natural rink. But my dad, after, you know, we started all playing, he really wanted to freeze something in our backyard. So he spent like weeks, he built this, you know, frame of wood and put down tarp and he tried to put the water in layers. So it would freeze, you know, really smooth. And I have this really distinct memory of him. He was like tying up my skates. We're in the yard. My brother's like zooming around on the ice already. He finishes tying my skates. He turns around to take his first stride. And we hear like the loudest crack you can imagine. And as soon as we stepped on it, the whole thing shattered. (laughs) It couldn't hold his weight. Oh, it was so funny. I can still remember his laugh from that. It was a great memory. And, you know, one of the reasons why hockey still feels like a really big connection to him. So New Jersey, not the best place for outdoor hockey. Hey, hey, look, you got you, you got me, you got John. I mean, Jersey rocks. (laughs) So... Anyway, first of all, thank you for sharing that story. Before you said, well, that's pretty much all I got or something like that. No, no, that isn't all you got. No, you have Extinction Rebellion. What's that all about? Yeah. Okay. So 
last year after I went to COP26, there was a sustainability conference in this province. So the part of Italy that I'm in is called South Tyrol. And they publicize that they care a lot about sustainability. A lot of our energy comes from hydropower in this region. And I think because it's one of the more wealthy regions of Italy and one of the more nature connected, I would say, places more than I've ever lived. Stockholm was also pretty nature connected, but definitely more than North America, in my opinion. More than Calgary? Yeah. (laughs) Oil and gas town. Yeah. (laughs) So there's like a huge push to bring sustainability here. There was this big conference and I got connected with local activists just before the conference. The founder of Extinction Rebellion, Gail Bradbrook, and I, I really recommend that people go look her up because that was one of the most impressive speakers I've ever experienced. She talked about all of the interconnectedness of the climate crisis. And for me, she really solidified or connected that there are, in fact, people to blame for this crisis, that the majority of people are just going about their day to day and doing the best that they can. But there are people who decided and continue to decide to misinform the public, to essentially determine that some people are worth the sacrifice for their profits. And, you know, she talked about how crazy it is, how sociopathic it is. And she really crystallized for me something that I, you know, in the engineering world that just hadn't clicked for me before. So through listening to her speak and meeting the local activists, I got involved with the local activist community and we've done a few actions nothing crazy. I'm not ready to get arrested yet. And I know there are a lot of like really brave people out there who are putting in a lot of personal sacrifice, but I helped blockade the parking lot because there's really good transit here and people still drive all the time, which is really frustrating. And then I also took part in a a protest at the local aquarium and museum where the aquarium and the museum actually supported us. So we collaborated on this protest and we painted the fish tank black to indicate that we're killing the oceans and I think both had really good publicity in South Thrill and started conversations. So, How did it feel to be a part of that and to be putting yourself out there? Yeah, it's intimidating for me, not just as an athlete, but as a person. I think anytime you're talking about something controversial, there's a big opportunity for people to misunderstand or not get your message. And that's just part of the process. I know for a lot of people at Extinction Rebellion locally, they've been personally criticized, been called hypocrites, which is something that we talk about a lot at Eco Athletes. And through Eco Athletes, we actually had a speaker come in who was a climber who came and talked about how imperfect advocacy is important because no one is actually perfect. And it's very easy for people to, you know, say you shouldn't do that because you flew to go to your game last week or for whatever reason to say you have no right to say let's be better because you're not perfect. And just pushing through that impulse to shy away from that criticism, I think is really important. And you know, I'm just such a small part of these actions. I'm supporting other people. I'm I'm taking part in marches and things like that, but I'm not at a point where I'm organizing them. I've, I've spoken at a couple of them. Which is a big deal, by the way. I'm growing into it. <laughs> How cool is that? And kudos for what you've done, not to worry about what you haven't. Yeah. And through that documentary with John, I actually got to meet the governor or president. The translation is not really clear to me, but, you know, the like main politician of this region. And it was a really eye-opening experience because he talks a lot about sustainability. It's one of his key priorities. And he talks about the challenges of actually like pushing through some of the changes that we need to see. And I think we're so busy arguing about whether we need to do something or not that we're not even like in the details of what we need to do. And we need to be moving so much faster based on what the science is telling us. 
So it was cool to see that other perspective of someone who's in political office trying to push in the changes and just to see the complicated nature of organizing all these different towns and all of these different sectors of the public, be it transportation, be it our food, our waste, our electricity. There's just so many aspects of the climate emergency, which, you know, you can see optimistically as an opportunity. There's something for everyone to get involved in. And yeah, it was an interesting shift of perspective for me. And how did that president slash governor, like, has he been able to find what that sweet spot is in terms of policy, in terms of his own political fortunes, i.e. being able to get votes and to hopefully make a positive difference in lives of people in his constituency? Yeah, the jury is still out for me. Like, I think there's a lot of things that a lot of policies that he's pushing forward in the province that I support. And I still think that he should be doing more. He talked a bit about navigating that fine line. And yeah, I mean, I'm still new to the region. I'm still not completely familiar with the language. So there's definitely some pieces of the political conversation that I'm not clued in on. But it seems to me that there's an appetite for more climate action here. And I think there are there are things that can be done that aren't so controversial. We'll get to this, I'm sure, at some point, but I started two new jobs and I was talking to my boss last week about... Just two? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Come on now, you're slacking. I was talking to my boss. We're working in the agriculture industry and we were talking about the air quality in our region. And because we're in a valley, the air gets trapped and there are a lot of tractors here because it's an agricultural area. And the tractors all use this like very dirty fuel oil. I don't know specifically what kind of oil or gas fuel it is, but it has a really high level of particulate matter that it releases like so much so that it like collects black dust on the apples and things like this. And, you know, we're talking about the adoption of electric tractors because there are tractors that are cost effective and, you know, no tailpipe emissions at all. And we have a green electricity source here. So it seems like an easy win, but there's a history of farmers lobbying in this region to have very subsidized costs for this fuel. So it becomes a politically untouchable hot potato. The farmers have had the advantage of this really discounted fuel for a really long time. But in essence, the province is continuing to incentivize a very non-sustainable practice. Air pollution is a huge undiscussed problem, but it, you know, asthma rates and other sorts of health impacts from particulate matter are really well established in the science. And there's a lot of reason that we should be pushing to switch these devices to cleaner fuel sources. And here you have a political football that no one wants to touch. I mean, is it possible that they could switch those subsidies to low carbon sources using a carrot and then also implementing a stick? Hey, if you reach your carbon budget, farmer so-and-so, and go over it, there's a tax that you pay. In my opinion, of course. In my opinion, it's something that the politicians have to be more courageous about. And, you know, the same thing with still talking about air pollution, car use is really high in this region, I think, because it's kind of spread out. It's a bit more rural than a lot of other urban areas. But the transit system, I mean, it's like light years better than in North America. So I'm, I'm not complaining for me. It's great. But for people who are used to European transit, it's, it's really behind the curve. The regularity and the reliability of the service is not high enough that people are willing to not take their cars. And so we have traffic. And so we have tailpipe emissions. And converting all those cars to electric isn't going to move things fast enough. We need to also push to some shared modes of transportation. While pushing on the EV conversion. 
Exactly. And I think those are buttons that politicians have the power to, you know, levers that politicians do have the power to make change on. So I think he's, you know, better than a lot of politicians. He seems to have the right mindset about it and he seems to really care about it. Like I I did get a genuinely good feeling from speaking to him, but I do think that he needs to be pushing it more. I think the whole world, the whole part of the world that has been part of the industrial development has a responsibility to take faster action on climate. Of course, I agree with you like 100%. I'm also going to quote Eco Athletes Hall of Famer and New Jersey Democratic U.S. Senator Cory Booker, who says, and this is an American construct, you can't have an American dream without it being a green dream. And you can also say you cannot have an Italian dream without it being a green dream. And so, but that's in the language of dreams. Senator Booker and others are also pushing actual policies that are actually, I believe, in that sweet spot or close to it that will make significant differences on reductions in emissions and have benefits for things like human health, animal health, income inequality reduction, and hopefully improve the economy. And that's where we need to be going. And it sounds like your governor president guy is trying and you're pushing, which is good. So one more hockey question and climate question. So your team in Bolzano, you're now in the hockey world. You're the experienced veteran on that team. You're calling me old? No, I'm just saying experienced. (laughs) No, 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 no. However, you can impart knowledge on the hockey side. How is it to impart knowledge on the environment climate side to a younger, just coming up cadre of players? Yeah, I think, okay. So like jokes aside, it's been really fun to be the veteran and to share my experiences with the younger players here, because, you know, in Italy, there's just fewer opportunities for the girls there's fewer resources for the girls. And there are some really incredible athletes here who deserve to have the same resources. So that's been a really rewarding part of the experience for me in terms of climate. The younger generation doesn't need any coaching on this. The younger generation gets it. The younger generation are already willing to live more sustainably. It's the people in charge of corporations. It's the people making you know huge political decisions that need to get on board. And I had another politician, I'll leave it vague so I don't throw him under the bus, but you know, I was chatting with him and he kind of said to me, you know, like no one really cares about sustainability. Like they're lying to you if they say they really care about sustainability. And I think it just shows how much we have a polarization in our political discussion and in our society in general and how little people maybe of that generation, he's not much older than me, but um, understand. Who is he again? He's with the European Parliament from our region. And he's a supporter of our team, thankfully. And I'll keep working on him. (laughs) But you know, I think there's just this huge disconnect that some people think they're going to be immune or that the economy isn't going to be impacted or these weather disasters aren't going to affect them. And they're just misinformed. (laughs) At the end of the day, it's an unwillingness to look at the problem or, you know, being fed a false narrative, which was pretty intentional. It's both because it's playing on the psychology of, I think, people don't want to think they're part of the problem, even though on a micro level, 
yes, people can make changes to their personal lives. And that's, you know, if we get that to scale, well, of course, that's a great thing. But really, we need to accept that the problem exists, not blame and shame, but figure out how we can get the powers that be at the governmental level, at the corporate level, at the societal level to move more quickly and to show that that's going to be a boon for most. And then that will get popular support. But we have to do that yesterday, a week ago, a year ago. And I think, you know, you were asking, like, how does my whatever climate (laughs) proclivity, whatever, like obsession, anxiety, whatever we're going to call it. All of the above and hope. Yeah. Influence the younger generation. I would say that like, I guess just some of my like lifestyle changes, people get curious about when they're around me. And I really, like you said, like the best way I think is to never be judgmental and never like push it on anybody. But the girls see me bringing vegan meals on the road and they ask about it because it's just like a completely different way of eating that they are not familiar with. And I'm not converting anyone to veganism. I haven't (laughs) like, you know, no one around me has become vegan Show them the Game Changers movie with subtitles. And a lot of people around me have reduced their meat intake and have started to think about other ways of eating. And, you know, the same thing with me roller skating and bicycling and taking the bus all over the place. You know, sometimes it's really inconvenient, but I think sticking to it, like the inconvenience of it shows people, it makes people curious at least about why I feel so strongly about it. And it's a conversation starter. And you know, maybe it doesn't change anybody's mind, but at least it starts a discussion and some questioning about how we as a society <laughs> impact each other. I think it's an on-ramp. Like, that's the way I look at it. Like, you're giving people an on-ramp to making changes. They may not make all the changes that you've made, but they're going to make a couple. They may make a change that you haven't thought of. Who knows? But I think we need these on-ramps to happen in a, you know, just more of them, faster. And kudos to you for doing it. So now I'm going to use this kind of as a pivot point to our last section, which is the future, which hopefully for you includes dual citizenship and a spot on the Italian Olympic hockey team wearing your dad's last name, your last name, into the arena at Milan, Cortina in two and a half years time or whatever gives it is. me goosebumps still just thinking about it, it gives me goosebumps I, I yes. really cross I really hope if that happens somehow I got to find a sustainable or somehow a way to get over there but putting that to the side what are you thinking of post-career and I know coaching could be part of it in terms of your climate work from an engineering point of view from an activism point of view from whatever point of view you'd like to take it? Well, you know my track record. I'm probably going to do all of the above. (laughs) So climate activism, I'm going to continue with eco-athletes. Obviously, I'm a big fan of the organization. I've met a lot of really cool people who are doing a lot of really incredible work all around the world. And also with Extinction Rebellion locally, there are a lot of people who care about this who are trying to get the word out and trying to just inform people and put some pressure on the politicians to make make things happen a little faster. And then career-wise, like I said, I started with two new companies this month, two different industries. I feel really strongly about both of them. The first is 
working for Living Future, which is a green building certification company. And their approach is that buildings should be regenerative for the environment, not just net neutral or not just net zero. They should actually be giving back to our ecosystems and reconnecting people with nature. And so I'm helping coordinate some projects with them in their European branch. It's a Seattle, North America-based company, and we are expanding into Europe now. I saw a such building in Seattle when I was there for the Green Sports Alliance Summit. And I'm not even talking about Climate Pledge Arena, which is, I think, working towards that. But there's another building whose name, the name of it escapes me, but it's definitely a living future building. So that's just one. Yeah. And the Kraken Arena is a really great case study to talk about because one of the things that our certification or I guess this company, I'm still new, it's not ours, but the living future certification process requires is post-construction validation. So your building has to operate for a year and prove that it's actually using less energy, using less water. So you don't, it's like moving these certifications out of the theoretical and forcing them to not just check the box, but really make sure that they're making the changes to really reduce the impact on the environment, which I think is really, really neat. And one cool thing amongst many, many cool things at Climate Pledge Arena is that they collect rainwater, which in Seattle, there's a lot. And, you know, they use it for a bunch of purposes that you might expect. But one that I did not expect was that they feed it to the Zamboni machine that resurfaces and smooths the ice. And the players from the Kraken and their NHL opponents say they prefer this ice because it gets a better skate feel. I'd never heard of that. No, for me, term this before. is like this is some sort of like weird psychological gymnastics. But I mean, for sure, like I think that there's a rink feel, like the coldness of a rink. Everyone knows, you know, when it's colder, the ice is harder. We say so, like you skate faster, it feels like less effort. And when a rink is warmer, it feels kind of like your legs are in cement and you really got to push way harder. I don't know what recycled rainwater, maybe there's a mineral component to the rainwater there. I'm not sure, but it seems like a So you're saying it's placebo effect. (laughs) Yeah, I think it might be placebo effect. But either way, if people are happy about it, it just encourages more rinks to start thinking about it, which is very cool. And then what's the other job? So the other job is more conventional engineering. I'm working at a startup that is developing a technology to recover heat from compost piles. So we have a lot of apple orchards and grape vineyards in this area. And every year they require prunings, like, you know, trimming so that each fruit gets enough sun. And so normally people kind of just like burn this stuff, which is really not sustainable, or they pay a lot of money to have it shipped away for it to be put in a landfill or burned in another setting. But what we're doing is putting it in a compost pile, recovering heat from the decomposition process and combining it in a really like high-tech system with solar photovoltaics and with heat pumps to provide hot water for the farmer's house and hotels in the area. And it's just really cool to be part of a startup that's creating a new technology. And I'm working on the European grant funding, which like the European policy is really positive for the environment, which is, it's great to see that the US is starting to catch up, but we're applying for this European funding and it's in English. So thankfully I can help in the English setting. But, you know, part of my job is to explain kind of the scalability of this and the potential impact. And there are a ton of farms in the EU and 
you know, this is an underutilized resource. And I think when we talk about energy, we need all hands on deck. We need lots of diversified different options for the technology for heating our homes. Heating is a huge part of our energy consumption. And here's another resource that we're throwing away right now that we could be using. So it's exciting to be a part of. It's been exciting chatting with you here, Jackie. In fact, we've had many talks and every time I come away having learned stuff, which is just so amazing. You have that ability. And certainly I hope that Olympic dream comes true. However, regardless of that, you are already an Olympian in my eyes in climate action, climate vision, and you're going higher, faster, stronger on all of that, which is the Olympic motto. So thank you for certainly being part of Eco Athletes, but for all that you're doing. It's truly incredible. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. You know, I love talking to you, Lou. Thank you for giving me the platform to talk about these things that I care about. And yeah, hopefully a little higher, a little faster, because we need to get moving on the climate. That's it. That's it. Well, with you as part of the higher, faster, stronger engine, I feel a smidgen more hope than I would normally. And that in this whole climate comeback thing is good and needed. So thank you, Jackie, for sharing your story with us. Thank you for listening to Green Sports Pod. You can find us wherever you go to get your podcast. And see you again next time on Green Sports Pod. You've been listening to Green Sports Pod, hosted by Lou Blaustein. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And head on over to greensportsblog.com the source for news and commentary at the intersection of green and sports. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Green Sports Pod.